gods come and gods go. Mortals flicker and flash and fade. Worlds don't last. Stars and galaxies are transient, fleeting things that twinkle like fireflies and vanish into cold and dust. His realm is the dreaming, the world of sleep and imagination. He is dream, Lord Morpheus. And he must learn to change or die. Sandman, an audible original produced in association with DC. From the DC publications written by Neil Gaiman, dramatized and directed for audio by Dirk Max. Hello. Good morning. Hello. This is the first episode of uh, our new cast. Uh, the Omniplex is open. I am Albert. I'm Austin. I'm Zephyr. With us today, we have... Uh, a guest who, if you're familiar with the audio drama, our guest this morning is a name that will instantly come to your mind. Uh, he's worked on everything from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to the works of Neil Gaiman. Uh, his current work is the Audible Studios adaptation of The Sandman. Uh, Dirk Maggs, writer, producer, director, is with us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. And I just wanted to kick things off by saying congratulations on the success of uh, The Sandman. I know so many people that don't listen to this format that have really taken to this thing. Like I mentioned at work that I was uh, doing this interview this morning and I, uh, one of my coworkers was like, oh, I just listened to The Sandman. I loved it. Great. It's really crossed a lot of barriers that people who maybe normally wouldn't give this stuff a try have taken to it and really loved it. Um, and it it's fantastic. I'm thrilled about that. If, 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 if it achieved anything, getting people who didn't normally listen to audio drama to listen to something and then enjoy it is, you know, the best possible outcome um, for me and for Neil as well. I mean, you know, because he totally believes in the audio medium as a storytelling medium uh clearly uh you, you you've uh you've done a good number of adaptations of his stuff um i really love neverwhere in particular uh which feels very much like a precursor to this mm. with um james mcavoy being involved in both uh, mm. and uh, I, I wanted to say neil gaiman's narration on it is it's really something special how was the decision made to bring him in as narrator um, he asked to do it, so I couldn't really turn him down, could I? I mean, you know, he don't want to bite the hand that wrote the book. Um, and, um, well, and Neil has his own style, uh, and really it was a no-brainer because if he hadn't asked me, I would have asked him. So it was always there. It was, it was just, uh, it, it had to be Neil. It had to be Neil also because of the authenticity of the project. Exactly. Be because there was definitely a desire on my part to not sell The Sandman short because it is such a towering piece of work even after 30 years. Well, the fact that I say even after 30 years, I think anyone who knows it well, that's really not even a statement worth any respect because of course it's here after 30 years it will be here in a hundred years time although it's uh comic books graphic novels and that's not necessarily um uh, what people read 
um, I don't know where I'm going with this statement, but <laughs> graphic novels have a certain audience and they don't always cross over to the mainstream literature. But in the last 30 years, The Sandman, along with by Neil, along with Alan Moore's work, and, you know, there's a, there's a, a select handful of people who've crossed into literature from what was originally an entertainment medium it became something more with these guys and it's so impressive that it did it but what's more it's as a piece of work it's such an achievement oh it's it's this towering uh, you know i followed the development of the sandman try, with people trying to get it into visual medium and it, they've crashed against the rocks on it um it does look like there is finally some movement with the netflix series but yeah it makes the achievement of getting it into audio that much more impressive because it truly is this towering mountain of a work. And I, you know, I, I, I listened to it this summer and I was really floored by how fluidly it was adapted. And you mentioned the authenticity thing. That's the thing. It feels like the way that I would compare it is it's almost like a bemused God, reflecting on his universe in his narration that's the tone that you get from it and and he he really is spectacular in it uh that's a i love that description of a bemused god that is kind of (laughs) that 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 does sound like neil in a way it does in fact we met through sandman because it was back in the early uh, 90s well the late 80s really when i was making stuff at the bbc and um I met someone from DC Comics, uh, Chantal Dolnice, who was on their sort of international uh, rights committee. And she was traveling over to Bologna or Frankfurt for one of the book fairs. And she was dropping into London. And I'd done a trailer for a program, which was, uh, and I used a, a, you know, I used a Batman, little Batman skit very much in the Adam West mold. Um, and, uh, and she she had to approve somebody had to approve it, and she was passing through, so she dropped into the BBC in um, Oxford Circus in London, and um, came in and listened to it, and said, "Yeah, that's fine, you know, that's that's good fun." And she said, um, "You know, if you ever want to do any more of this sort of stuff, you know, uh, it's Superman's birthday next year. This was 1987, so that would have been 88, his 50th birthday." And as I was at that moment applying for a job in Radio Light Entertainment, which is the kind of comedy and light drama department of BBC Radio at that time, um, from which came various luminaries, including Douglas Adams and um, Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers, um, the the Pythons, John Cleese, uh, you know, all of these had passed through its doors. So it was quite a department to join. And I was, you know, keen to do comedy, radio comedy, because in in the UK, um, spoken word has never died away. Performed, scripted spoken words never really died away. Unlike in countries where it became more of a commercial medium. And uh, and so uh, I, I added that to my list of program ideas because you had to have program ideas. Anyway, I got the job and I made a Superman docudrama mm-hmm. in 88. And then in 89, 90, we made a Batman docudrama for his 50th. Um, Which I actually re-listened to both this week in preparation for this cast. Oh, okay. Oh, well, yeah. Both uh, I'd heard on many of my long trips that I take because I just like to drive. Um, and they're really both interesting meta works um Mm. really fantastic stuff y'all can i really hate that a lot of the stuff that we're going to be discussing this morning 
Sandman aside is hard to find now. Yeah, I tried to uh I tried to find Death of Superman adaptation and could not like it's mm-hmm. on uh eBay like in CD form and on Amazon yeah. through third-party sellers for like $50. Yeah, yeah, I I tried doing the same with uh your adaptation of 2001 Space Odyssey and uh even just looking at your uh wikipedia article there are a lot of uh red links just stuff that's uh not really ac- as accessible as they once were and it it is kind of a shame really because it yeah. especially with how the uh audio drama is now coming back into form at, at least within my demographic Yes, I think it, it's it's true, and it's annoying. Um, but having said that, it's been actually re-released twice now, so I live in hope, um, you know, that it will happen again. And my part of my ongoing discussions with Audible about projects, you know, yeah. I, it includes, uh, hey guys, how about you know we get to do this? <laughs> the problem always was with the DC material, particularly, was that if there was a, a movie in the works. They didn't oh. like having any p- competing product out there. And so when we did later on Batman Nightfall, uh, that was when they actually um, said, uh, you cannot release, this cannot be broadcast within three months of the launch of a Batman movie or six months after its release. Oh, so, man. you know, immediately it prescribes what you can do. Although having said that, we released in '94, and I'm pretty sure that's around about the time of the Val Kilmer Batman. But maybe it's, it's uh, after that. You're correct on that because it landed at the uh, Faulkner County Library in Conway, Arkansas, at a, in at about that time, uh, uh, and yeah. uh, and that's where I was first exposed to your work. Actually, was <laughs> as a uh, fourth grader in Conway, Arkansas. Uh, ah, okay. I listened to Nightfall, and mm-hmm. I'd listen to it again on a. Uh, very nice drive through the Ozark Mountains um, <laughs> in uh, 2007. I would be able to get my hands on it then, and that was when I also got my hands on Doomsday and Beyond, uh, <laughs> which truly, one of the big questions I have is with those works, because <laughs> I'm a huge comic book fan, I'm a massive comic book reader, <laughs> with those works, you were taking these sprawling epics, and it's amazing to me how tight the adaptations are because I've seen so many adaptations of these stories where they're just, there's nothing but fat on them. And these are, these things are to the bone, but you never feel cheated. And I'm, what's the process that you go through with something like that? I think the, um, it was interesting. I kind of evolved a way of adapting comic book material um from the early days of doing the docudramas about superman and batman where i was superman we put on trial the conceit was he was on trial for trials against humanity for interfering in our ability to look after ourselves and um we were using uh examples from the comics as evidence so lois lane was defending soups and lex luthor was prosecuting um, they obviously got their legal diplomas off the internet, and um, <laughs> if it had existed at that time, um, and so you know, at that point, I was adapting comic book material, and it was an interesting process because um, before we actually recorded the program, 
um, we had to I managed to get the cover of the Radio Times, which is like the TV guide for radio and TV here in the UK. Um, and that was a big deal getting the cover. And they got, gave me an inside page. And I asked Dave Gibbons if he would, if, they, if he'd be prepared to do the art. And he was. And Dave also was coming in as a witness in Superman's defense, you know, to say Superman's a good guy. He's not here to hurt us. Yes. Um, and Dave, uh, I had to write the little comic strip that went inside the Radio Times, which was kind of a setup for the court case. And I learned a couple of things from Dave about how to construct a couple of pages of comic book. You know, it was really, it was just a straightforward scene where a policeman was pushing back and there was an unruly crowd outside the courthouse in Metropolis. And and Dave said to me, it's not a story I've told before this one, but Dave said, um, you know, you've overwritten this. It doesn't need so much of this. Take less, take this out. I can cover this in the art. I can do this. I can do that. I thought, oh, hang on. Um, so really, you know, uh, cutting back is the way to do this stuff. So when it came to adapting the comic book elements in the script, I tried to, I already had the idea that I wanted to make it sound like a movie. I didn't want it just to sound like a very polite kind of radio play thing. I wanted it to be really powerful and strong. So I wrote it with an an ear towards being visual, if that makes, if that yeah. doesn't sound like a tautology. Oh, totally, uh, because that's, it's funny, Doomsday and Beyond I listened to while I was driving through an ice storm, actually, mm-hmm. um, in a very ill-advised decision. I should not have done that. Uh, I shouldn't have driven through that ice storm at all. I didn't get the job I was going for anyway. Um, but I remember, honestly, I remember the visuals that were in my head as I was listening to that more than I remember the ice storm I was in. And that... <laughs> I'm worried. I've endangered your life without knowing it. That's very worrying. <laughs> no, that was that was in 2008. That was in 2008. I'm fine. You're still here. Thank God. <laughs> I can tell a little story about this, you know, the way that these are adapted, because that's what people kind of forget. They, the scripting is the, is the bit that matters. You know, in the beginning is the word. And when I was doing the early stuff, which was uh, which were the two docudramas, and then we did The Adventures of Superman, a straight adaptation of the John Byrne stories, the post-crisis in Infinite Earth stories. Um, we did two series of that. I just want to pause and say I cannot, I cannot recommend those enough. Those are just fantastic. Uh, really red-blooded and... I love the burn stuff anyway, and you just really did a great job of getting that in well, here. His, his his work was so good. I mean, he he and Jerry Ordway, uh, you know, created a really nice reinvention of Superman that, and that gave me a start. And then Douglas Adams heard that, and got in touch with my boss at the BBC and said, you know, would this guy be interested in bringing Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy back to? back home to BBC Radio where it started because I think, you know, with the way he makes things, we could bring it back on home. I've finished writing them now, so why don't we bring them back to radio? And so that was really a nice outcome and that kind of diverted me for a bit. And then that went wrong uh, through nobody's fault. Well, certainly not through Douglas's fault and not through mine. It didn't work out because there were contractual issues that weren't resolved. So Mm -hmm. around about 93, I was suddenly doing a, working on a chat show on BBC Radio 4 with Ned Sherin, which was great, but it meant that I wasn't doing what I felt I was good at. 
and Hitchhikers wasn't happening. And at that point, needing something to go back to when I'd finished doing this chat show, um, uh, somebody said, oh, um, one of the networks is looking for a drama. Would you, you know, do have you got any ideas? And I noticed they were doing Death of Superman. So I immediately pitched to get that. And it was called Superman Lives in the US uh, on the original release. And over here it was called uh, Superman Doomsday and Beyond. Same product, no difference. And that was in half hour episodes. And that was when I thought I was really going to try and write something as if it was a movie. I was not going to, uh, you know, take any prisoners on making it sound like it was there should be a picture somewhere, somewhere in the room. Um, I didn't want to surrender to the idea that radio was the poor relation. I thought, no, sod that. I'm going to go for it. And um, so that was the first time, you know, and I, I always remember being very pleased with the opening where we opened with the death march and uh, a funeral procession. And, you know, your assumption is it's going to be Superman's funeral and it's Lex Luthor's funeral. And the and that kind of pulling stuff around because it was a, a that was a sprawling storyline with everything going on and being able to pull it down to I think it was uh, we were in six half hours. That's three hours running time. Um, a, a huge story was a real challenge and resolving it and doing it pretty much as the uh, comics were coming out. In fact, M Mike Carlin at DC was sort of sending me, um, well, uh, first of all, he's sending me the comics that already were there. Then he was sending me galley proofs of the sort of artwork in black and white. Then I was getting the pencil drawings. And when I was working on the final chapters, I was just getting oh, the wow. scripts, you know, without any artwork. So that was really fun to sort of get to see how the process worked. And that was a real education and I was really thrilled about it. And I thought, oh, I'd love to do, you know, I'm really getting back into uh, comic book stuff. And I think it, there's a great synergy between it and sound. We, we don't overlap. I can, I can give the pictures noises um, and yet still be creative and still have that amazing kind of flip kind of bounce that you can get from a really well-told comic book story that you know movies only wish they could have at times so i felt we had something so we we'd made um superman doomsday and beyond the the death of superman story and things went quiet and the network didn't want anymore because they were transmuting themselves into a kind of sport news network instead of an entertainment network so again everything died and um I had to do a few other jobs and I thought, ah, that's a shame. It's all over, you know, great fun. But BBC Radio 1, which were the popular music network, the youth network, had a change of management and the new guy wanted to do a daily drama serial. And I was working in light entertainment and I'd by now got into the position of senior producer and there were quite a few, you know, fairly heavyweight colleagues we the corridor included um people like david tyler who these are people you may not have heard of but who were you know a big comedy producers now david tyler and and um harry thompson and amando yanucci who went on to do veep and all of that so i just saw know, david copperfield a few weeks ago yeah well yeah fantastic job fantastic job and so we were all called into this meeting room you know and there's all of us there and uh and Matthew, the, this new boss of the network, came in and said, "Now, I, I want a daily, I want a daily uh, serial that's really going to grip people, really going to make them want to tune in every day." 
And I want it to be fast moving and pacey and interesting and pushing the boundaries. And I thought, well, that sounds like the sort of thing I'd like to do. But at the same time, I knew that the BBC, as a public service broadcaster, has a kind of a social sort of obligation to kind of deal with social comment and, and, you know, sort of reflect the society and so on. And I just assumed that they would be after some kind of, um, how should we say, I don't know, Northern Irish housewife dealing during the troubles, you know, with with a family and uh, a husband who's not the same religion or something like that. You know, I, I just thought this is going to be some kind of heavy hitting, socially responsible thing. Me as an irresponsible, lightweight I have no place in this. And anyway, so Matthew went through all sort of 12 of us producers and I was right at the back and he finally got to me and he said, and nothing, They everybody came up with all the things I was expecting, you know, sort of people, drug addicts living in a squat in East London or, you know, whatever, these, these kind of terribly depressing but very worthy ideas. Um, and he got to me and, and I hadn't actually gone in with the idea, but it just came to me or I was, when he was describing what he wanted, I thought, I was thinking, gosh, you know, Superman or Batman would have been perfect for this. Anyway, it didn't take anything. Got to me, he said, what about, what have, what have you got, Dirk? And I said, well, you won't want it, but I'd suggest Batman. And he said, done. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is brilliant. Um, and, then I, and then I thought, oh, I've got to ring, I'm going to have to ring DC. God, I hope, they, I hope they're up for it. Um, but all of this went through my head in sort of the split second before he said, and can you do it in three minutes a day? And I thought, ah, okay. And I sort of smiled and said, yeah, no problem. And we kind of broke the meeting up. I said, right, come and see me tomorrow, whatever. So we broke the meeting up and I walked out and I went back to my office and my PA, Maureen, was sitting there. And I said, I don't know what I've done, but I think, I think I've just really screwed myself. And I explained it, you know, because three minutes a day is, is that's a tough that's a tough thing to do a three minute uh, drama ongoing story I, I couldn't imagine how to do it and um and word had got out to um the writers guild i was a member of the writers guild at the time and uh the, the head of the writers guild wrote a piece about how it was impossible to do serious drama in three minutes a day none of this is making me feel any better you know <laughs> but you know, I said I would do it, and DC said yes to it. And then I sat down and started writing, and I, I suddenly, you know, the scales fell from my eyes, and I suddenly realized three minutes a day is a comic book page. It's a, it's a comic book page, because that's how you construct a comic book page. You, you, you top, you, if you've got, I don't know, nine panels or whatever running, you know, from left to right down the page. You start at the top, you're, you're catching up on story, you're, 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 you're hitting the ground running. Um, during the course of the page, you, you hit some kind of a story beat. And at the end of the page, your last frame is going to be something that makes you want to turn over and see the next page. So this three-minute episode basically had to hit the ground running at the beginning. Um, whatever exposition or backstory had to be told on, on, the, on foot. You know, we had to be moving towards the the beat point we were going to hit in that uh, episode. And at the end, there had to be some kind of a page turning. I, I won't say cliffhanger because it's not as cliched as that, but, you know, something makes you want to per turn the page, some piece of information that drives you on. Because that's what comic books originally were for. You know, they're entertainment. They're to 
to suck you in. So as soon as I'd realized that, suddenly three minutes a day wasn't scary anymore because I realized that's exactly how to construct this. And the other thing was to actually use everything I'd learned previously on the other um, productions we'd done, the Supermans, and most of the straight dramas and the comedy. Comedy taught me so much, but that's kind of a different thing. But about where to hit the, you know, where to drop the bombs, as drummers would say in jazz. Um, so by that point, I was I was really kind of bringing my, I, I would say that was where I got my A game on Batman Nightfall, because... I, and I, and there was a very conscious decision that we would have three minutes a day, but I would be able to stitch those up into, well, th the whole thing ran about 65, uh, sorry, um, about three hours and 15 minutes, 65 episodes. And, um, and the idea was then if you stitch it together, you, you wouldn't get, you can imagine, you know, you could, if you see each of those three minute episodes as a, as a little sine wave kind of curve, you know, going up and coming down again. It, 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 you wouldn't end up with a, you know, a sort of undulation of a, of evenness and obvious um, edit points. I tried to write it so that certain uh, of the weave would run across two or three episodes, you know, um, certain kind of tempi of uh, beat points wouldn't just hit every three minutes. So that when you listen to it over 30 minutes, you're actually getting something that feels like a, a movie and has the kind of pacing and the expository power because it it doesn't actually sit at any point and and sort of take a breath it just keeps going it's breathless but um it worked uh, far better than i thought it would uh, at the outset simply because i suddenly realized hang on a minute this is comic books this is exactly what they're there for so in the end then it was just a case of how would this sound if it was a movie okay i've written this then how does it sound if it's a movie and that's when we get into ways of not having a camera but still knowing what's going on and thus if batman gets in the batmobile and drives through gotham the one thing i was desperate or determined not to have was a, narr a narrator voice i didn't want someone telling me what the what the damned uh, descriptions were in the corner of each um, comic book panel i wanted it all to be acted and so there was a, a radar on the, uh, uh, the, there was a computer, the, the bat, Batcave computer was in the Batmobile and the voice would tell you that the forward safety radar is on because we're about to go past the high school or we're heading for the Belfry or we're this or we're going, you know, over the Mackayi Bridge or whatever it is to Arkham, whatever, you know, there were ways of, of painting the picture without having to have a narrator and that was my big determination on Batman to avoid a narrator if I possibly could and I hear so many comic book adaptations even today where a narrator and I'm, I'm leaving Sandman out of this because that's a different kettle of fish but in general I've, I've, I've heard um, stories leading DC and Marvel characters where somebody says he moves up he grabs her by the arm I mean it's great but it's not you know it's not the medium's got so much more going for it than that. You, you, you can, you know, unless you're contractually bound to read everything on the page, why would you do that? Why would you not fly? You can make pictures in people's heads with this stuff. Um, I think they were contractually bound is the thing. Well, then, you, but that's the thing, because I, I, anyone who works in sound professionally knows what an amazing medium it is. And I'm certainly not disrespecting anyone's work because technically it's perfectly competent but i'm thinking 
that's a real shame that they were tied that way if that was if that was the situation they were in um and it's one of the things that i have to say dc were brilliant about um, mike carlin on the superman things and um scott peterson and, and denny o'neill on the batman just let me do it they just let me do it my way they never reached in and tried to change anything they they let me fly with it uh, they check the scripts you know an idea of note um superman wouldn't say that word or something like that you know but um but no they were incredibly good to me and so yeah we we we, we did batman nightfall and then um marvel in london came and said why are you doing dc why don't you do our stuff and i'm saying because i've only just started this so we did the um, the amazing spider-man which was just the best fun ever um, and then we and then we did Judge Dredd, a couple of Judge Dredd story arcs. I the day the law died is fantastic. I'm a huge, I'm a huge Judge Dredd fan, and uh, the day the law died is stellar. That is one of my favorites. I just love it. And Bill DeFries as Judge Cow, Bill DeFries, who I just quickly to pay tribute, he he died earlier this year, and was just one of the finest human beings to walk this planet and one of the loveliest men and such a creative and guy and such a, he's just a ball of energy. You could power a small town with Bill. And he was so great in that as Judge Cal. The whole business of, of being in the bath with his rubber duck or whatever it was and all this stuff, he was just, he just he was just jazzing it all the time. There's so much great stuff in that. I mean, I, as I said, yeah, the, the, you, you've worked with some really the, talented people. I, uh, a lot of names that like they, I didn't know them before, but I would, my ear would pop when I'd see their, their names listed in the credits because, mm-hmm. you know, people like, uh, William Hootkins, uh, Lorelai King, really mm-hmm. talented, talented people who unfortunately aren't known over here, but who mm-hmm. really gave just these st- Stellar performances. Uh, there's so much a wealth of talent on these that I mean, we we could be here for hours if I was just listing all of the talented people you've worked with. Uh, there's a there's but, a lot of them that I would listen and uh, like the credits would read and be like, oh, okay, I can hear it now, but I did not know that was them. Yeah, they were great, and we were lucky, you know, because we had all the. We have a sort of US expat acting community here in London and, um, you know, you see a lot of them in the Star Wars movies, you know, the the, the original three movies and Hookins was was Porkins in um, Star Wars. He was, um, he got shot down, you know, and he was just, uh, you know, another one who's left us too soon. He was just the best fun. He walked in the studio and the place just went up, you know, five degrees in temperature because this huge warm person was in there. And God, he was funny. The outtakes, the absolutely unprintable, unbroadcastable outtakes <laughs> with Hootkins. He was so funny. And of course, Lorelai, um, I actually gave her a first gig. Uh, that was She was introduced to me by Bob Sessions, who played Batman. And he was a song and dance man. He was in 42nd Street in London. He didn't do straight drama. And he had this voice on him. And I, and he came in to read for for um, the Superman on trial, and I just heard this voice, and it, and he he it was just like the way I heard Batman, and it wasn't the I'm Batman, it wasn't that sort of thing, it was a much more sort of cultured East Coast voice that I would imagine Bruce Wayne actually having, you know, if he was a genuine human being, and um, although maybe a little more mature than you, one would be used to these days. Um, 
you know, we had all these, and Garrick Hagen, of course, who, uh, and Liza Ross, Garrick was in Star Wars, he played um, Biggs. Um, and, you know, all these people coming in and just plugging into this community of American actors. And I soon realized that Brits doing American accents was a big mistake. You needed Americans, or at least, you know, North Americans, you know, it could be Canadian, but they've got to be able to carry off uh, the stuff and they really were wonderful and Hootkins I'm trying to think there were so many I've got so many outtakes with Hootkins you know secreted away on hard drives where he's <laughs> he got bored sometimes one thing I have to come back to is uh, uh, I think my introduction to your work was Hitchhiker's Guide is uh, I became a huge fan in high school unfortunately uh, shortly after uh, Douglas had died and I think about four years later, they uh, reintroduced the the radio the radio show with the tertiary yeah, phase. Yeah, that's that's when we that's when we did the ones that Douglas originally wanted to do with me twelve years earlier. Yeah, how did that come back into the picture? Where you, uh, uh, you're going to do like the last three books? Um, Douglas had asked me. It would never occur to me to go to Douglas to ask him because I just didn't think I was worthy. But he just heard Superman, so he was he was really interested in in hearing, you know, it brought back, because I think he'd had a bad experience with the TV show. He didn't feel that that worked as well as it could have done. You know, it was a little bit cardboard sets kind of thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it was a little bit of its era in BBC productions, even though they spent a fortune on it. And some of the the, the, um, the cartoon stuff was great. The the, the voice of the, 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 the book, you know, the diagrams and things, the, the animations were fantastic. And the acting was fine, but, you know, it's just every time somebody leans on a wall the wall bends you know so it's that kind of you could see where they uh had reused sets and whatnot <laughs> yeah there was a bit of recycling going on but you know bbc it has to save money somewhere you know oh yeah so no he'd asked me in in 1992 and so you know it was going to happen and then they had someone write a script who wasn't douglas and wasn't me and this person put a talking dinosaur in the first scene of the tertiary phase which a isn't in the book and no. b isn't scientifically possible right well we don't know doug we don't know dinosaurs didn't talk but it seems likely <laughs> that they didn't um however they they made excellent saucepans but no but anyway so um and uh, and Douglas uh, just went crazy. He's, I sent the script around him, and I thought, mm, I don't think this is a good idea. And I kind of almost heard the explosion from Broadcasting House, which is a good eight miles from uh, Islington, where he was. Anyway, so uh, I went around to his house and found him rewriting it on the spot, kind of you know, in his MacBook, or and um, and he was he was muttering under his breath. And I said, um, <laughs> "You didn't like it then." And he said, you're joking, it's bloody awful. Um, and he sort of stopped his, but I, I can't, I can't write this all again. I wrote the book. And I said, well, I'll do it. I, I'll do it. And you can, I mean, I'll do it. And you can read what I've done. And if you don't like it, you can change it. And if you do like it, you can even take credit for it. As long as somebody pays me, I honestly don't mind. I just really want to do it. Yeah, okay, well, that might be an idea. Yeah, okay, all right, Dirk, yeah, I'll let you know. Anyway, so I, you know, it, it, we leave it at that. And um, a couple of weeks later, my boss comes in and says, no, it's not going to happen. The 
there's a contractual issue which we can't resolve, so I'm afraid it's gone away. And we have the original cast lined up. We have Peter Jones, who was the original voice of the book, and everybody was really keen to do it. And they were all, I knew them all because they were all regulars in our department at the BBC, the actors, you know, we kind of knew each other anyway, because that's how it works in, it's a small place, London, you know, so. Oh, yeah. Night, which uh, in your other radio like especially the comedy dramas yeah i hear a lot of crossover like stephen moore is in of course dirk gently's and yes uh, yes he plays odin yeah. yeah yeah he does well that that was the thing you know because you 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 know it it does cross fertilize and i did attempt to pay homage you know uh, you know in ways that were um you know very carefully kind of um work together so that there was there is always there are quite a few links there are easter eggs that nobody knows about and stuff that i've done since because there are things that happen i just i just revisited um the dirk gently uh, radio adaptations yesterday and yeah there are a lot of uh sound effects from the hitchhikers uh universe in there that were very much appreciated and a lot of just little bits well, it would have gone, if we'd had done a third series, it would have gone further because my plan was to use Douglas's unpublished stuff. Oh, awesome. And what was published of The Salmon of Doubt to actually have the Hitchhikers and the Dirk Gently universes cross over. And the crossover point would be the party at which Zaphod Beeblebrox pulled Trillian. Oh, amazing. And left Arthur Dent for dead, uh, romantically speaking. Um <laughs> And and that Dirk gently would be at that party doing a completely unrelated thing. And it would just like, they'd, they'd cross over literally at right angles, like a, a pair of bullets going in different directions. And the idea was that in the process, serious cybernetics yes. would have picked up because, because there was an, uh, an I Ching calculator which I gave the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy sound effect to open it. It was a very carefully constructed thing, which in the event didn't happen because um, the company that I was working for had a change of management and the new manager didn't like paying people for things, including jobs they'd already done. Uh So um, there was something of an issue, which uh, in the end, the only way to make it go away was to leave the company. Um, nobody contracted me. And then uh, Douglas's agent, Ed Victor, the late lamented Ed Victor, um, didn't want anyone else to do it. So he pulled the plug on them being able to do it without me. And oh, nice. at that point, well, and then we met together in... In a urinal in the South Bank Centre, because that's because why wouldn't you? And uh, so I'm standing next to Ed as we're attending to our business, and he said, um, "You know what, Dirk? I'd really like it not to happen at all. I think we should leave well alone now." And hmm. I said, "Fine, that's fine by me. You know, leave it. Let's let it finish with the second series. Let's not try and gainsay Douglas. He's not here anymore." Yeah, which is why when I do now see. Um, the TV adaptations of Dirk Gently. I mean, there was a one in Britain, uh, T- Stephen Mangan played Dirk, and then there was um, Arvind Ethan David's uh, one in, in the USA, which was very funny and very clever. But I kind of don't feel that you should be reinventing Douglas Adams. I think Douglas was so unique that maybe it's better to let it be. But, you know, who am I to say? They're, they're now making TV series, another TV series for Hulu of 
hitchhikers and there's no one from the original team as far as I know involved so it will be really interesting to see what they do with it and I could be wrong it could be brilliant oh wow yeah I hope so like are they going uh completely off book as it were for that I have no idea oh man no idea yeah that will be interesting yeah I mean it might be you know might be set in the US might be completely different thing oh my yeah that's interesting that would be weird uh one one kind of related question i have is i know that you uh uh recently a couple years ago uh did the hexagonal series based off of owen colfer's book Uh, owen colfer's book yeah yeah which i hadn't i i will admit (laughs) i i haven't read just because it's like well it wasn't written by douglas so it feels like it'd be weird but i really enjoyed that one the the hexagonal phase yeah, the the reasoning behind doing the hex. Having said what everything I've said now, I, now now we go back and say, yeah, but you did it. <laughs> but the th- <laughs> there were two reasons really for that. First of all, it was the fortieth anniversary, which kind of you know yeah. it would have been nice to do something. So Owen Colfer wrote this sixth book, and I did offer to BBC Radio, but they were doing a spoken word reading, and at that point, I thought, yeah. No, finish where Douglas finished things. And I'd already added a coda to the um, end of the uh, quintessential phase, the fifth series, which was taking a bit of a liberty as far as some fans were concerned. But the reason I did it was because when I did talk to Douglas about Hitchhikers, he pretty much said to me, I'm sorry I killed all the characters off at the end of the fifth book. Oh, sorry, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. No, I do, I do remember... Uh seeing an interview with him saying that he was in a really bad mood when he wrote the book and uh, <laughs> he, he really wished he could write a sixth one to kind of undo that. Yes, I think that was it. And 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 then Douglas wasn't there to write the sixth book, but Owen was asked, Pat Polly, Douglas's daughter, enjoyed his Artemis Fowl books. So And Jane, his widow, and Polly, so if there was going to be another book, um, Owen would be the guy to do it. And Owen, you know, who would turn that down? Of course, you know, any author would say, right, you know, I love Douglas's work. I'm going to try and write a hitchhiker book. So he wrote it and it was it was lots of fun. Very it was it was it was not Douglas's voice, but there were moments that were very Douglasy in it. Oh yes. But in the meantime, Books had come out about Douglas, which had accessed his papers, which are held in St. John's College Library at Cambridge University. And that was where it became clear there were some gems that never actually made it into the books or the TV series or the radio scripts, because all these notes went back to the mid-70s. Oh, wow. And I thought, if I was to adapt Owen's book, but where possible... If there was a really good bit of unpublished Douglas, add it. Then we would have a nice 40th anniversary tribute with a fresh story, but with some quintessentially Douglas bits in it. And that's in the event what we did. Oh, gosh. We had a script where um, particularly the early episodes had quite a lot of Douglas in them um the perfect uh, the uh, what was it called the ultra warm beast was one of them and there were others and these wonderful sort of circular only douglas can write a page full of um, material about one subject and during that page it is not mentioned until the very end and yet it's all about the subject and yet the thing is full of subordinate clauses 
and sidebars within the text of, that he's written that get you to that final point. And it's impossible to edit because it's Douglas and the logic, it's like a souffle, you know, if you pull it out the oven too early, the damn thing collapses. Right. And that's Douglas's, you know, kind of way of working. And um, and I do remember we were doing, it was, um, we had Bill Franklin, who was the voice of the book for the uh, tertiary quandary and quintessential phases, who was a close friend of Peter Jones, who was the original voice of the book, who had sadly died. Um, and Bill was another very well-known voice in, in British broadcasting. And he was very fam famously known as the voice of Schweppes, who made sort of soft drinks, uh, sodas for, you know, that you added to alcoholic drinks, mixes and so on and so forth. And he had this terribly sort of British voice, very, very wonderfully cultured. And um, and Bill <laughs> read this sort of page of stuff. <laughs> he looked up and he said, how can you read this bloody stuff? And it was just so funny to hear this terribly refined British, you know, guy <laughs> who's had everything to read. And he gets to the end of the page of Douglas. He said, I can't effing do this. <laughs> so that was wonderful. And ironically, for this last series, Bill now, having sadly died, uh, John Lloyd, who used to flat share with Douglas, shared an apartment with Douglas. He uh, wrote a book with him, didn't he? And wrote, and wrote, well, he, he actually contributed the end of the first series of Hitchhikers when Douglas got stuck. Oh, wow. Uh, John stepped in and helped him finish it. He gave Douglas some plot stuff from a book he was planning to write. <laughs> and um, so, but he had to be the voice of the book. And John's, you know, just such a, a lovely human being. He's, a, he's a, just a terrific guy and an amazing comedy producer. He's really, really He's so clever and he's so, he's so totally um, humble about it as well. I mean, he really has got a brain the size of the planet. But he was reading it. And I think there's a little bit on the promotional video. He's reading a bit of Douglas and the end he goes, bloody hell, this is <laughs> insane. And it, I just, I said, and I found him, I said, you're not the first person to say that, mate. <laughs> um so um you know this the, the douglas stuff is unique to douglas and it added his unique flavor to the hexagonal phase and because we still had simon and we still had jeff and yes. we still had mark and bless her sandra dickinson who'd played trillion stepped into the shoes of the lovely susan sheridan who was trillion on the radio series and who'd tragically died because she was the most lovely human being on the planet oh i did not know that dang but i managed to cut her into the first episode because we had an overlap to the end of the the previous uh, series um and because we had the original cast and we were able to do it with john and douglas was in it it felt enough like hitchhikers to do so yeah. that was where i kind of bent the rules a bit my my own personal rules about not treading in places where you know other people have messed right yeah so that that was that's that story yeah and i have to say i love the way in the uh tertiary phase how you uh uh how you melded the voices it's where it's like oh yeah it's the guide is updating <laughs> like that, that was a nice that, that yeah. was a nice clever little bit and i also love how you got the um the tv voice of trillion in there as well in the fifth Oh, that's that is Sandra. Yeah, yeah. Sandra was in the TV. She, she's in the sixth series. Uh, well, she come no, she comes in, in the fifth series because yeah, 
Uh, Trillian and Trisha McMillan, who are the same person, mm-hmm. aren't in the fifth series. This is Douglas writing. Douglas split them up. In a parallel universe, there was one and the other. So that was great. We could get Sandra in from the TV series. So at every point, we've tried to get in people who at some point played that character or were in Hitchhikers. I mean, I missed a few out that I wish I'd got, but we did pretty well. The only one where we were in a real pickle was on the sixth series. Um, Stephen Moore, bless him, by that point was very ill and couldn't do it. And we needed another Marvin. And... It was, do we have an impression of Stephen or do we find another actor worthy of the role? And that's when Jim Broadbent said he would do it. And Jim was in the original um, first series of Hitchhikers as uh, one of the um, Starsky and Hutch type police guys or whatever. <laughs> and, um, and, he, and he did it in his own way. And we, we, we explained it by saying that Marvin had had a new voice circuit put in but he was just as miserable as ever <laughs> even though they uh they corrected the diode problem yeah but <laughs> there was always something to moan about you know of course he's a miserable robot he actually we, we, we did a stage show of marvin and um we have an, another marvin made out of radio parts radio studio parts he's got a radio for a head and a tape machine for his body and microphones for legs and things and um my son would operate him on stage as one of these sort of Japanese puppets from the back, but he's life size. He lives in our garage, uh, in a, in my garden shed at the moment, and he loves it in there. It's damp and cold, and he loves it. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's amazing. I guess I I do have a couple of uh, discussion points and questions for you. As far as the uh, audio drama is concerned, we're more or less seeing a, I, I guess, a resurgence in that, uh, more so in my age group, because uh, at, at least for me, the closest fictional audio drama that would be relevant to my age, roughly late 20-somethings, would be uh, Welcome to Night Vale. Mm, yes. Very good. I, I guess since Good Omens uh, was adapted into a limited series, my age group has more or less flocked to that one in particular. Where where do you see the audio drama going? That's a good question. I, I, 20 years ago, well, 15 years ago, I thought radio drama was dying on its ass because, um, I mean, the BBC was carrying on with it and so on, but... Um, you know, I tried so hard with the um, comic book stuff, particularly to get it out there and to, um, and it was a thrill for me when, you know, like, um, you know, 7-Eleven in the States were carrying the you know, cassettes of Super Superman um, uh, Lives or whatever, because, you know, that was great. You, you went to buy gas and a pack of gum and you could pick up a cassette to listen to in the car and I always thought that you know the US was the market to to hit because if you drive a long distance and let's face it that's what you guys have to do a lot of the time you know that's the best time to listen to stuff because you can't watch a screen but as, as I said I've you know all of these stories that you're talking about I can literally tell you the three hour drives that I was taking when I listened to them so you're dead on on that yeah, well, it, that was the that was my feeling that you know that would where it happened. But the trouble is, there was never any 
I think the BBC's limited resources were too limited and BBC America didn't exist then. And there were all sorts of things where, you know, my primary publisher, i.e. the BBC, wasn't in the business of really trying to make a commercial success beyond a certain point of this stuff. It was really for the UK market. And getting into the American market just wasn't a, a, a thing. And I'd already spoken to the guys at Audible when it was a much smaller company in this in in the in the UK. And really, single voice readings was what they wanted to do. They were cheap. They could be, you know, they didn't need to be in stereo, for example. You know, you didn't have to have more than one performer in the room, actor, whatever. So. It, it just kind of thought, I thought this is going to fade away really. And um, even though the internet was coming in and podcasting, the, the word had come out. It was usually two guys in a room, you know, kind of uh, 500 miles apart, uh, recording each other on Zooms and, and sort of, you know, it, or on Skype, you know, and sort of Skype. What the wandering quality that you get on, in those days on, on less than optimum broadband. So I just thought, I'm really going to have to retrain, you know, I'm going to have to do other stuff. And, and I've, I do work in, I've done TV animation, voice directing, and I've done games voice directing. So I just thought, well, that's where my future is going to be because I, what I really love to do is, is not going to be paying the rent much longer. And then we did Hitchhikers or, you know, Hitchhikers came back. So that kept me going a bit longer. And obviously Hitchhikers was a, a worldwide thing, which was very nice, but you know, it didn't seem like there was a future in it, but suddenly the internet, the the whole, the podcasting thing, podcasting to me was, was, was a word that made no sense because uh, audio drama, I understand, or, you know, kind of current affairs or whatever, news, whatever. Um, so I didn't understand the term, but I, I saw this thing happening, but I thought, well, this is so restricted to two people at the end of a piece of string. <laughs> this is not going to ever have, you know, a bunch of really top cast in a room. But then uh, around about 2011, um, uh, two things happened, really. Firstly, this lovely Northern Ireland BBC producer called Heather Lama sent me an email saying, um, I've managed to persuade the BBC to do a Neil Gaiman. And, um, and Neil would really like you to do the adaptation. This was actually a bit of a surprise for two reasons. First of all, because... I and Neil first met through a lovely lady called Phyllis Hume at DC Comics, who on the phone to me used to ring and talk about stuff um, happening in New York and stuff happening in London, you know, gossip and catch up and uh, our families became friends and so on. And she said, have you met this guy, Neil Gaiman? And I said, um, no. And she said, well, I'm going to send you some of his stuff. This is about 1990 because this Sandman thing is amazing. And I said, okay. And she sent me some, the first, I think she sent me um, Preludes and um, Doll's House. And I read them and I just thought, holy smoke, this is good. This is different. And by this time we were doing like Superman Lives or something like that. And um, and so I, she gave me his email. So I emailed him and said, look, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And he came back and said, oh yeah, I'm, no, I've heard your stuff. It's good. And uh, I said, well, how about doing Sandman? And uh, he said, yeah. If DC will say yes, why not? So that was my that was the beginning of my attempt to get Sandman made. And while I'm doing Batman and Superman and Judge Dredd and all this other stuff, I cannot get the BBC to to go for Sandman because I just don't think they understood what it was. They because it's unique. It is totally unique. And you say, oh, it's a new mythology, and yet it uses lots of old 
old ideas from you know myth and legend and so on they, they just didn't get it um i kept trying to sell um sandman to them from 1993 till the year 2011 uh i must have taken it in about four times and i remember going in for a meeting with the with the head of the speech network in the mid 2000s and she said to us she said to me what I really need is something that's going to get up out, uh, lift our listenership under the age of 50. And I said, let me do Sandman. <laughs> I will triple your listenership under the age of, I'll triple your listenership over the age of 50. And, um, and she said, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think it's yeah, yeah, sort of the comic books, not really. And I'm thinking, oh, for crying out loud, you did, these people did <laughs> Superman once upon a time. So it was driving me pretty crazy. And I could not get sell them Neil. Like they, they just didn't understand what Neil was about, I don't think. So when Heather emailed in 2011 and said, hey, would you like to work on a Neil Gaiman thing? I've sold it to Radio 4. I'm like, what? I can't <laughs> believe it. They finally, they finally get it. And Heather was brilliant. She sold them and she sold them Neverwhere, which I would never have thought of because Neverwhere to me was a TV show that obviously needed a much bigger budget to work. Great cast, fabulous story, all of that, just so under budgeted for what it needed to do. And I sort of thought, you know, that's an interesting choice. So, but actually it turned out to be a great choice because of course Neverwhere the author's preferred edition has got everything in it that Neil did couldn't put in the TV show. And it, and the characters are, you know, have that much more time to gestate in his imagination. So uh, the chance of adapting that meant that I was doing something for Radio 4 with Neil, for, for the BBC with Neil. And I'm going to answer you. I'm getting back to your question. I am getting there. Believe me, the, 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 the arc of my answer bends towards answering your question. I swear it. Um, <laughs> You're good. <laughs> and this is where I'm beginning to, and I've given up hope really. We're doing a stage show of Hitchhikers. We're just planning that. And I'm thinking I'm probably going to work in theatre now because, you know, this thing's dying. And then Neverwhere comes up and I go to the read through. I go to the table read which Heather's, and Heather's done all the real hard graft on this. She's done the casting, she and Morag, the production assistant, they've done all the work, you know, because BBC production departments in radio are not big. And they've really, so I'm thinking, hmm, this is going to be interesting. I get in there. So I sit at the table and I'm sitting with Heather and next to me is Natalie Dormer. Next to her is James McAvoy. Next to him is Sophie Okanedo. Next to her is Benedict Cumberbatch. Next to him is Andrew Sachs. Next to him is Bernard Cribbins. Next to him is Johnny Vegas. He's a brilliant British comedian who's nothing like he comes from Vegas. Uh, David Harewood and, uh, and, the, and, uh, and loads of others, just brilliant actors. And, and, and at the end of the table is Christopher Lee. And I'm sitting in this table read. And I'm thinking, holy shit, this is, this is interesting. This isn't, for a dying medium, this is interesting. Anyway. That's as A-list as it gets. That's as A-list as it gets, you know. And this is, you know, and Benedict was, was pretty big at that point. He hadn't quite got to Doctor Strange level, but, you know. Um, and actually, I knew his mum. I work with Benedict's mum, so we kind of had a connection. And uh, Wanda, who's really nice, is an, an actress. So, you know, it, it was good to 
you know, it's, it, again, like, you know, this is the thing about it. It's a small place when it comes down to these sort of groups of people. So it was nice to be able to, and I'd worked with Christopher. He was in a thing I did called the Gemini Apes back in 1998, my own story. One of the few times I've done one of my own stories. So there was kind of a familiarity there. But even so, when they were all in one room at the same time, you're thinking, wow. And, and I knew we had something. So we've got this amazing cast. Um, it's completely gobsmacking. And when we go into the Sound House, which is just this great studio that I love in uh, in West London, where I do as much stuff as I can, in fact, you know, is my kind of go-to place. We're recording it, and um, I get an email from this guy who's just joined Audible from TV called Steve Carsey, and he says, um, can I, you know, could I, would you meet up for... A chat, and I said, "Well, you know, do you want to come to the pub when we finished? Because we all used to go up to the pub after we finished the day's recording." Um, and so I met Steve at the uh, at uh, the the castle pub up the top of the hill, and he said, um, "Look, you know, uh, really like what you do. I love your work. Would you be interested in doing stuff for Audible?" And this was a real surprise because I thought Audible would never get out of the single voice business, and I said, "We." Before before we go any further, you do know I I don't direct single voice stuff. I have done. 2001 A Space Odyssey was just a single voice reading of the Arthur um, C. Clarke book. It wasn't actually an adaptation. Well, it was, I, you know, I edited it down a bit, but that wasn't a, a multi-voice thing. So if you're busting a gut to find it, thinking that it's a big cast effort, it's not. It's just a reading. And that was the first and last time I was going to do that. So I said, look, I do multi-voice stuff. I use lots of sound effects. My post-production time is longer than a BBC half an hour in a day post-production time, you know. And uh, I, I want I use music, which has to be paid for. What I do is not cheap by comparison to what Audible are used to. And he said, "That's okay. We're trying a new thing here." Would you be interested in doing a, um, a story in the set in the Alien universe? And of course, I'm like, yeah, would I? Yeah, hell yeah. Oh, of course, I'd love to. Um, what a challenge that would be, particularly when one of the, when your antagonist is um, has no English, shall we say, um, has no has no spoken language. You know, your single biggest character actually doesn't do words. So um, that was that was like, yeah, I'd love to. And Steve had, you know, got what I try, was trying to do. And, and Audible had got what Steve was trying to do. And that set off this thing where suddenly we're doing stuff that's being streamed. I'm making stuff that's being streamed. And I realized, hang on a minute, there is an audience out here for what I do. And it's really you know, kind of exciting. So on one hand at the BBC, I'm working with Neil and we did never wear, with Neil and Heather, I have to add, because Heather was always a part of it. Neil and Heather doing uh, Neverwhere, and then we did Good Omens and we did Stardust and we did How the Marquis Got His Coat Back, which is a sort of Neverwhere sequel, little coda. And I did adapt to Nancy Boys um, three years ago for, uh, but Heather had left by then. So that moved, I sort of moved on myself by that point. Um, and so when, uh, at the end of 2017, you know, I realize that suddenly this, this medium isn't dead, it's growing and it's growing really fast and it's growing in the States, which is exactly where I was hoping 
stuff would, you know, people would realize how insanely great a storytelling medium audio really is. And by then, you know, things like serial were happening and, and, uh, um, oh, the stuff Casey Wayland is doing, you know, all of this stuff is happening and Bill DeFries and Fred Greenhalgh and, you know, there are so many people making great stuff, John Dryden at Panoply. So I know now that our, our, this is not a dying art, it's the opposite of that. And at that point, at the end of 2017, somebody had been uh, tweeting, um, tw tweeting to Neil on Twitter saying, is there any chance we'll ever see Sandman? And Neil said, well, it's not in my gift, you know, in any form, they said. And Neil said, it's not in my gift. And I read this tweet of Neil's and I thought, yeah, we, God, if only, if only, if only we could have done that. Anyway, I didn't think anything more about it. And then two days later, I got an email from Sandy Resnick at DC Comics, who was there back in the day when I was used to phone uh, Phyllis up. You know, he was kind of getting the coffees in those days. And now he's kind of senior vice president or something or the other. Sandy sent me an email and said, hey, Dirk, how you doing? Um, uh, just curious, I, I, saw, I saw this thing on Neil's uh, Twitter feed the other day, and, uh, you know, um, this is just me talking, it's not DC, but uh, do you think, uh, you know, do you think you and Neil might be interested in doing The Sandman as an audio movie, like you used to do the Superman stuff? And it's like December the 23rd, I was thinking, God, Christmas came early. Um, <laughs> and I replied, and I just said, um, let me, let me ask Neil. I thought I'd better, you know, kind of just play it cool. So I emailed Neil and said, do you fancy doing Sandman as an audio? And he just, and Neil, who is a man of greatly considered, you know, the words and, you know, everything is finely honed, just wrote back, fuck yeah. And that was, <laughs> a, you know, the moment when you realize, yeah. This could work. And Sandy, bless him, this is off his own bat. So he then had to go and, you know, take it up through the corporate structure at DC. And um, who I might add, their parent company, AT&T, have royally rewarded Sandy by letting him go um, in a sort of purge. I of, have a um, lot of thoughts on all of that because yeah. I've I paid attention to that. I'm not happy. No, I'm well, I'm not happy because you don't let people like Sandy who have delivered effectively an, a, a number one New York Times audio bestseller. That's the people you don't let go. So anyway, um, so if anyone's listening to this podcast who um, has a, a post for a senior guy from publishing who's just full of great ideas, <laughs> I can pass them on to me. I can pass them on to Sandy. Um, anyway, so yeah, so we were away and then, you know, it was a case of, saying to uh, Steve at Audible, look, you know, Sandman. And Steve said, are you kidding? That's the first thing. And I suddenly, he reminded me that he actually said Sandman to me when we met all those years ago. And I completely forgotten, you know, that was one of the things he always wished would come. So somehow, you know, the wheels of fate turned and, and Sandman came to be. And not only came to be, I believe it's the fastest um, selling. Selling is a kind of weird word with Audible because kind of like you're talking about people taking it up as their monthly choice or whatever, but let's say selling fiction title ever in audio, which is just bloody great. You know, we're, we're out there ahead of the Harry Potters and the, you know, all the other stuff, which is a really, I'm, I'm you know, not that I, I, one is in competition with great art, but at the same time, it's nice to know that this stuff really 
because we it's not a single voice reading it is the full monty it's got 68 in the cast it's got a specially uh, composed um uh, music score and it's got an amazing cast and it's been I, well, I, I remixed it nine times, the whole 11 hours of it, till I was happy with it. So, you know, so much care and love has gone into it. And it becomes a n- number one New York Times bestseller. And it's turned people on to listening to stuff who didn't know that you could listen to stuff and be entertained in that way. So because of that, I can say in answer to your question... I am now convinced that audio has a fantastic future as a story-selling medium, particularly when you can bring all the tools to bear that an audio studio gives you, which is voices, sound effects, music, you know, great actors, all of these things. Um, the magic of the recording studio, you know, it, it, it goes back a hundred years now, but I suppose for me, you know, the biggest single magical thing was something like the Beatles for me. I'm a huge Beatles fan and I'm a huge fan of what they achieved on four tracks with, you know, George Martin and um, uh, Jeff Emmerich, you know, sort of in this. And if you've ever visited Abbey Road, one, uh, Abbey Road 2, it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a particularly glamorous place. And yet all this magic was created there. And that's what I love about this business. It's the, the hidden art of sound that you can be in a room and, and the magic's happening, but you really don't get it until it goes in your ears and paints those pictures in your imagination. So in that way, I'm thrilled that we are where we are. And I'm you know, really excited about the future for, for it, not just for myself, but for everyone who works in the medium, because more people will come in and start making stuff now. And that's what we want. We want a healthy, thriving, new blood, new people coming in. And and if that's pushed the boundaries so far that there's room for them, so much the better. Well, that's Wonderful. been really the great thing about Sandman has been that I've been able to go to people who really loved it, who were excited because they knew the comics or maybe they didn't know the comics but they knew Neil and they really wanted to take a stab at that and then go to say, okay, well, if you like this and then suggest something in say the BBC back catalog, uh, I've told a lot of people to pick up uh, the BBC Lord of the Rings, for example, uh, especially been able to sell them just on the cast on that one. It's like, Oh, you like Lord of the Rings. Well, Ian Holm did this hmm. or so on and so forth. And it's been this great entry point for me. I know for for myself, this was my entry into Sandman. Like, this is the first I had experienced it. Uh, But I was a big fan of Neil Gaiman. And, of course, your name was on it. So, like, oh, well, I'm in for something. Oh, that's good. I I, I do have one other question for for you, Dirk. And it's uh, it's one that I was kind of uh, thinking about the past few days. In, in regards to something like future projects, I'm I'm probably sure you aren't at liberty to discuss any any uh, future projects at, at the moment. But would you consider readapting the uh, Raymond Briggs graphic novel uh, When the Wind Blows? Gosh, that's an interesting one. That would be God. What a sad book, though. I I guess well he, over here in uh, stateside the. Uh, 86 animated film is a little more well known, but only if you're like a Pink Floyd completionist and uh, 
yeah. Roger Waters did the soundtrack along with David Bowie. Yes. And yeah. and then also the film just being generally dark in nature. Thinking back about what you said about uh, adapting from graphic novels and comic strips yeah. and how you... No, I've got to say, yeah. No, I think it's... I think the idea of doing something like that would be, you know, wonderful. Um, I think I'm going to have my time cut out for me for the next couple of years. But um, it would be, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested. I mean, I, my problem is really now I'm sort of trapped into the, adapting other people's work, you know. And, and uh, you know, my original intention of doing my own stories kind of went out the window, which... I, I, you know, I've I've got a few creative itches I'd like to scratch for myself, but I've got to say, if I all I ever do is you know, adapting other people's work, that would be the kind of very worthy subject matter I'd be more than happy to do. I, I, that bringing something like that in front of people again, you know, it, it renewed and yet still authentic would be a worthy aim. Yeah. Oh yeah, because like revisiting the film and seeing how it was adapted for radio at one point right in its mm. earliest days that a like a re-adaptation would not only bringing back renewed attention to the graphic novel and the film in the same name but also applying uh more contemporary uh social issues uh, uh, yes I, I agree i mean it's you know it's in a league of its own, a bit like Sandman, really. Not the same league, but it's it's in its own class. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's a really um, a really valid subject to uh, you know to to go at. Um, although just at this moment in time, probably I've got enough on my plate. Oh, oh, of course. I I kind of expected you to have several projects in the works, but wasn't sure if that was something you'd be willing to i guess entertain per se but yeah yeah oh no absolutely well i mean good work is good work isn't it and and it's wonderful when you can introduce it to a new audience that's even better yeah having heard your adaptation of good omens i gotta say your version uh makes it a lot more immersive with your your range of sound effects the the use of actual queen music and then applying uh, atmospheric filters and effects to it so that it feels like you're like actually in a car or outside the car and in the open space it would be it would be wonderful yeah i'm glad that came across yeah and i feel that like the multi-voice audio dramas that you have done are more i guess attuned to american ears since i I mean, not, not to sound negative about Americans, but... Uh... Don't you dare. I love Americans. Don't you dare. Don't you bloody dare. Come in here insulting a wonderful nation. I mean... No, I, no but uh, do you know what? It's interesting you should say that because one of the early decisions I made and we, when, we, when we were talking earlier about writing, um, one of my conscious decisions was to use the grammar of movie, of film, to in scripting and in the way that the sound design and the music and indeed the acting took place. Uh, and it was to, you know, look at uh, 
all the usual suspects when it comes to Robert McKee, Sid Field, all the you know all the movie writing, you know how how to write a story well and all of this stuff. People who make money out of telling you how to do things that in the end comes down to your own creativity, which is the one ingredient that not everyone can bring. But the thing about it was that I really felt that the grammar of film was now a universal storytelling medium and much more so than the classic novel or even the modern novel or certainly poetry or whatever. But, you know, the, the stories are told visually in a very muscular, tight economical way when when it's a story is told well you know there there is that economy of language in order to achieve the point and it's going back to what we were saying you were saying earlier on about the batman nightfall script how you know sort of it's it's very lean and that was really the influence of film script writing the idea that these should be written as a film and when people you know i talk to students about writing for radio or audio i should now say writing for audio drama and they say oh how do you go about it and i say well i write the movie i write the movie script which and then i and then i figure out how i'm gonna you know deal with the stuff that i don't have a camera to show which is fitting because you uh, one of the works that you've done that i really enjoyed was the uh, alien three the william mm. gibson yeah where yeah. it was it really feels as though I've watched that, um, especially because you were able to get uh, Lance Henriksen and Michael Bean back. Yeah. I greatly enjoyed that. And uh, not as much as I did, <laughs> Austin. Not, you didn't enjoy it half as much as I did. That was the best fun, working with Michael and Lance. They are funny guys. They had me in stitches. Their stories. They were absolutely throwing everything they had at it. Yeah. And... That's why, like, that, that's another one that's really easy for me to go to people and be like, hey, are you interested in this thing? Because I have a lot of friends who are Alien fans. And to say to them, hey, here's this really, it's not very lengthy experience that you can have that you'll really enjoy. And they, they, are, they are fantastic in it. That's one that I really got a lot out of. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I, I really loved doing it and you know Michael and Lance are you know not as young as they once were and um and acting for audio is not the same as acting in film you know this is something I learned a long time ago directing actors who are used to working in short takes giving them a five-page scene and asking them to do it on you know at reading it and acting it at the same time it's not they can't do it but they're just not used to working that way and you have a kind of learning curve on it. And and by we did two days for Michael and two days for Lance, uh, sadly separately because Lance was shooting their thing. Um, uh, but um, on the second day, both of them got it. You know, they were, they were kind of, it, it, they weren't exactly off the book. They were still reading, but they had the idea that they were in the moment and it was kind of like a blue screen acting job. And that way we could, you know, work with it and we could play with it. And what they really enjoyed, and this is the joy of directing actors in an audio medium is you can play with the material. You can workshop ideas up on the fly when, you know, you don't have to block rehearse it and nail it down. You can, because the time element is constricted anyway, um, but also, there is no need to worry about the camera in the room. 
you have they can just play with the material and that was the best part of it to see them then take it you know and we had long discussions lance and i were talking a lot about bishop because we were deciding i'd written this opening narration by bishop which basically tells you the last 15 minutes of aliens it kind of recaps that story and for which also as a personal challenge i had to recreate um, from the ground up the original soundtrack of Aliens for the last 15 minutes because I, I could not use the original soundtrack. So all of that is rebuilt. Um, and um, and with Lance doing his, um, uh, what was the line he did? Not bad for a human. And he, he did the thing where the, the white stuff's coming out of his mouth. He, he did it on, on mic just like that. He took, give me a glass of water. Okay. <laughs> they did it. And it's like, this is so utterly insanely <laughs> mad and cool at the same time um uh, you know so but lance you could talk i could talk about bishop and we could talk about how he was going to go at it and but bishop wouldn't talk like that bishop wouldn't tell the backstory i said yeah but don't forget bishop's been through a traumatic experience his 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 uh his cyber brain is is dealing with all this so he's trying to process it and maybe he's just burning it into his sort of memory bank so he doesn't forget what's happened so he would be quite methodical oh okay you know and then he says i tell you what if i could try it like this and and you know you have this the thing about audio and this is why you get actors british actors know how good it is it's why james mcavoy will walk straight in to a a, a radio job or a, an audio job and not worry about the fact that it's no camera in the room because he knows that he can play and they love to play actors and uh, Benedict and James together on Neverwhere was the best fun because they just were ad living all the time. They were adding all this stuff, you know, and I had to say like, boys, boys, we've got to get this scene, you know, otherwise we're never going to finish today. Um, uh, so, you know, there's this element of fun, of playfulness that you really don't often find on a, on a studio floor or on location on a movie or whatever because it's all too serious and there's far too much money and there's way too many people hanging around waiting for stuff to happen. So that's the joy of it. And I love that Michael and Lance got it. And we got to then make William Gibson's script live a little bit, you know, kind of like, because it was a draft. And I think Bill would have written another one if he'd been encouraged. Instead, you know, it was let go kind of thing. But... It was great to get Hicks and Bishop back together. In fact, we we kind of came up with a little scene between the two of them where they're walking together, and um, and uh, and uh, Bishop says, uh, you know, some he feels slighted by by uh, Hicks, and uh, and he says, well, you know, um, uh, uh, Hudson used to think I was funny, amusing, you know, which is a, a you know, reference to uh, Bill Paxton's character, which is lovely because, you know, Bill Paxton was obviously the, the Joker on set. So it was, and having, you know, tragically left us, you know, it was nice to kind of get him in. And uh, we were able to, you know, they were both telling stories about how much fun they had with Bill. So that arose from their experience of making the movie. So I felt we brought a bit of the spirit of the original movie and that bunch of grunts, you know, who obviously had a whale of a time shooting in London back in 85, um, into this, you know, little moment of reprise. So, I mean, obviously you can't talk about what's coming, but uh, I take it you do have a busy few years, you say. Yeah, I think probably, you know, a couple of years worth of, yeah, pretty full on stuff. Yeah, which is good. I look forward, look forward to experiencing all of it for certain. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I look forward to you experiencing it. That means I'll have finished it. 
No, I, I, I'm looking forward to doing it. It'll be fun. It'll be nice to, uh, um, obviously, it's, we're, we're in challenging times at the moment. So it would be really nice to be able to record in a studio where people aren't having to, you know, isolate and do all this stuff. But, well, that's, you know, that's the least of, I, I'm not complaining. God knows there are people who have suffered terribly through this period of time. Um, but it would be, it will be great to be working on, uh, new material and um, and also to be, um, he said, choosing his words carefully because there's so many things he could say but he can't. <laughs> um, just to you know what to to push the boundaries even more. We there are, we we are talking about uh, you know sort of technically trying stuff out and things that you know are kind of it'll be fun to play with. So it, it's not just the fact that we're making more noise noises with nice actors it, it means we can also see how far we can take the medium because it's very exciting what you can do with sound these days you know there's this new thing called stereo i don't know what it is <laughs> you wanted oh I, i've just thought you wanted to talk about independence day uk yeah i'm glad you brought that up i mean there's been so much to discuss but I just wanted to say how much I really enjoyed that. I was 12 in 1996. So, of course, that movie hit me mm-hmm. like a ton of bricks. And how I really wish that was more available because it is such a wonderful little addition. It's certainly better than the sequel. I'll put it that way. <laughs> well, that was, you know what? That was the weirdest thing. That was because we had done the Supermans and the Batmans and a guy called Steve Crickmer. I think, I can't remember. He was working at Fox, Fox's London Outpost in Soho. And he gave me a call and he said, uh, we got a new movie coming up. Do you think you'd like to do something to do with that? And I said to him, one of my rules is not to directly do something that already exists in, in a sort of, in, in the electronic media or the visual sense particularly. And the only time I broke that rule was on American Werewolf in London. And that was only because John Landis, A, uh, said it was, you know, wanted me to do it and B, let me add a bit of backstory to David and Jack and uh, the characters up at the Slaughtered Land. So that was that was my exception. But generally speaking, I, I, I didn't want to do it. So he said, we've got this movie Independence Day and he sent me the script by um, uh, Dean and um, your, your man, uh, Roland. And I read it and I thought, well, this is, yeah, this is fun. Uh, it's Spielberg-y fun. And, um, and I, he said, uh, can you do something with it? I said, well, no. I, I mean, I, I can't do something with the script. I mean, because there's going to be a movie. There's no point. But um, I said, but I could do the British story because, you know, the, this is all about the, you guys. And, um, you know, your president happens just to, happens to be a fighter pilot. So, you know, of course, of course, he'll go up and kill the bad spaceship. Um and uh, I said, but I could do the British side of the story if these things are all over the earth, you know, these aliens, it's a war, uh, an earth invasion. Anyway, so that kind of, and then I had this, you know, crazy idea that it could be like homage to Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, which was the, that was the fun idea. It could actually be as if it was a live broadcast. And I really didn't think BBC would t- go for it. But Radio 1, again, this guy, Matthew Bannister, who originally commissioned Batman, who was, a very forward-thinking guy. He's, he's a lovely guy. He's, he's not there anymore, but 
Um, and I said, you know what we could do? We could do this like Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, and we could do it as a live broadcast, and we can use actual Radio 1 guys, Nicky Campbell, and um, we need a professor figure, and, uh, oh, how about um, uh, Patrick Moore, because he's like, he was Britain's, um, eccentric uncle astronomer on TV and he'd been on TV since the mid fifties. It was like, he was sort of like the, um, uh, uh, what's your gentleman who used to do that lovely program for kids, the uh, beautiful day in the neighborhood. Ah, uh, Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers. He was kind of the Mr. Rogers of astronomy. He was a more grumpy kind of crotchety Mr. Rogers, but anyway, so, uh, Patrick and so on. And, um, you know, and uh, oh, we could put them up in, they could be in an RAF. Uh, we could be talking about um, aliens. They're out up stargazing on a live program for the kids of Radio 1. And um, and suddenly this uh, this alien message comes through and then the, the, the ship arrives over London. And then we, then we join the RAF and they're fighting the alien fighters like the USAF guys are doing over the States. Well, our RAF, it's like the Battle of Britain again, but it's with spaceships. And it was just mad. And he says, can you do it in an hour? I said... Yeah, don't <laughs> fuck it up. So that was kind of it. So it became this sort of alternative story. And the the and I know I, I flew to I came over to LA and went and saw Dean. They just wrapped shooting when I arrived, and they were in the same hangar that the Spruce Goose had been in, um, you know, um, on Aviation Boulevard or wherever it is. But um, anyway, Dean was great, you know, <laughs> and he looked about twelve years old. It was just so weird, and. Um, and, you know, I said, look, this is my idea. And I told him about it. He said, I like it. I like it. I really like it. He said, there's only one thing. And I said, what's that? He says, the Yanks have got to win. And, I, <laughs> and so I said, okay, okay, fine, whatever. Yeah, that's good. I, I'll get my guys to join your guys, wherever you ended up, the Beccar Valley or whatever it was. So we did that. And, um, uh, oh, what happened? Anyway, so yeah, and so when I wrote the script, I made absolutely sure the RF, the squadron leader, the RF guy says at one point, of course, you know what's going to happen, don't you? Bloody, bloody Americans will take credit for this. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, <laughs> the old rivalry between the, our, our transatlantic cousins that we are. I yeah, <laughs> love it. As I said, that's, that's one that I really, if it can be found, I, I encourage people to track it down. Uh, it's it's out there it's out there it's it is on certainly certain readily available internet i am i am very strong about not encouraging um shall we say piracy um however there are certain things which if they're never going to get a release you know i'm sort of quietly glad that they're out there on certain publicly available channels shall we say so but if it's been legitimately published i'd rather it was paid for Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Which is, I mean, uh, my my Audible library is quite stacked. I will blunt on that. Uh, as that, uh, I actually had this mem. Uh, when you did the uh, X Files ones, I would literally sit up at night just waiting, just waiting, checking my Audible account, <laughs> waiting for it to drop. Because, yeah. because I've been a huge X Files fan since yeah. then, since it started, and you know, I would. I'll be honest. Your your season ten is better than the one that we got. Oh, uh, you know what? But what was made me sad about that because Joe did a great job on those comics. Joe Harris, he's a great comic writer, and Matthew Dale Smith and all the artists did a great job. And um, but they didn't get the rights to the final bit, so we didn't finish the story. Um, and 
And I just, uh, it just, it still rankles. But then uh, we got Gillian and David, and I don't think Gillian wanted to be Scully anymore in any medium. You know, they were great and they did the job and it was lovely to meet them and work with them, you know. But I think but at that point she felt she had to say goodbye to Scully in any medium. So, hey. Because, you know, with her career going as it is, um, yeah. and I will say the work you got out of William B. Davis. Um, well, that was Bill DeFries. I've got to say, Bill DeFries and Fred Greenhalge of Pocket Universe Productions, along with Lance uh, Axed, were the prime movers in that project. I came aboard later um, to sort of exec it and sort of just kind of generally make sure everybody was happy. Um, and I, I said, well, if I'm going to do something, I don't want to just sit and watch. Can I write the scripts? And, you know, so that ended up. So I was kind of shepherding it through. But it, Bill DeFries and, and Fred Greenhalgh, who's um, Final Room Productions, and, and Fred's now running Pocket Universe. And I'm trying to think. And Lance Roger Axt, who was there. But I'm trying to think what uh, Fred's new company is. But anyway, Bill's left us, sadly. But it was a joy to work with him. So that was him. He got... He got the, the Lone Gunman, and he got Bill, and he got Mitch, and he did a fantastic job because, uh, yeah, he was—he's uh, a good guy. Well, I—I I really cannot express enough how how glad we've been to have you on. This has been a such a rich conversation. So many questions that I was like, well, I've got this lined up. Oh, nope, there he went and answered it before <laughs> I even asked it. And I'm I'm grateful for that. Uh, it, as I said, as someone who has been listening to your stuff for years, tremendous honor to have you on. And uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, I, again, the Sandman is—it's out there. It's doing great. I—we in a summer where we have had such a dearth of good media, it really was a gift to have this this summer to have this really great. Uh, you know, intense experience and the stuff when it gets to the serial killer convention, Oh, it, mm. it, you want to talk about something to listen to at Halloween. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> the Corinthian was, Oh, Riz was great. Yeah. You know what? I, I, I missed a line with him. We did. He came in, we did all these lines and I was in the edit and I said, Oh shoot. I've got this damn line. And I just, I don't live in London. I had to drive up. So I, I so I, um, texted him and said, Riz, mate, I'm really, can you imagine how I felt when I found I haven't got this line? Anyway, bless him. He said, okay, come around to my place. So I drove around to his apartment and he came down. He sat in my car because the line was in a car. It was the line he does with uh, with Jed. And um, so we recorded it in my car. So we did a location. That's my one and only location recording on Sandman was this two two or three line scene with, that Riz did. Bless him. He, yeah, he was um, he was very kind to me because really that was not something I screw up on usually. But hey, well, again, I just cannot recommend it enough. Uh, and it's been a real honor having you on and uh, look forward to seeing what comes in the future. This has been the Omniplex. Uh, you can find us at theomniplex.org. You can find us on Twitter at, at the Omniplex and uh, email us suggestions anything the omniplex podcast at gmail.com one thing we uh ask all our guests is uh, is there anything you'd like to promote oh gosh how kind well I, i'm on twitter uh which is where i encourage people to follow me at dirk mags 
um, D-I-R-K-M-A-G-G-S, which is where I post stuff like the cast list for the Sandman that weren't on the original release and um, useful information um, and uh, upcoming projects when I'm able to talk about them. And uh, I have a website, www.dirkmags, all one word, dot com, D-A-R-K-M-A-G-G-S, um, which is, I, I, I sometimes remember to update, but it's got a lot of background stuff on there and, you know, odd bits of details and probably some very boring stuff. No, it's, uh, it's all good. It's all, it's, it's really, it's lovely to be able to talk about it, but I'd always rather be doing it. Ain't that every art? Um. Yeah, no, absolute joy, and uh, yeah, I shall look forward to talking to you again sometime about whatever happened next. I'm sure. Vogon Building and Loan advise that your planet is at risk if you do not keep up repayments on any mortgage secured upon it. Please remember that the force of gravity can go up as well as down. (laughs) 